The Hill of Tara is one of the most important archaeological and cultural sites in Ireland. In its long history, it served as a place of burial, as the meeting point for great assemblies, and as the legendary inauguration spot for the ancient High Kings of Ireland. Yet in 1899, a group which styled itself as the British Israelites arrived at the Hill of Tara and began to dig up the site. Their goal? Well, as you'd expect, to discover the legendary Ark of the Covenant, the chest which uh, supposedly held the original engraved tablets of the Ten Commandments brought down from Mount Sinai by Moses. It may sound like a cheap knockoff of an Indiana Jones movie, but the British Israelites were deadly serious and uh, very certain in their beliefs. Their strange activities, however, did not go unnoticed, and the excavations at Tara provoked a fierce reaction in Ireland. I'm joined by Dr. Mairead Carew, archaeologist and author, whose book Tara and the Ark of the Covenant contextualises the extraordinary story of the British Israelites, their excavations and the campaign to save Tara. Mairead, you're very welcome to the History Show. Thank you. Tell us about this strange I don't know, were they a group, a cult? What would you describe them as? The British Israelites. What was their history before they arrived at Tara? Well, one of the earliest writers about uh, British Israelite uh, theories was uh, John Wilson in Brighton. And he published a book uh, called Lectures on Our Israelitish Origin in 1840. Now, one of the theories he proposed was that the Anglo-Saxon race was descended from the last tribes of Israel and that they were God's chosen people and that they were destined to reach the promised land if they kept their covenant with God. So, uh, and one of the other theories he had was that the white race was inherently superior and therefore they had a divine right to rule and also that the English language was pure Hebrew. And I presume this sense of superiority carried over into a sense of superiority over the Irish. It certainly did. Now, initially they set up an organisation in 1889. Um, It was set up by Edward Wheeler Bird, who was an Anglo-Indian judge. And many of the other smaller organisations became affiliated to that main organisation. But they drew their membership from MPs and the aristocracy and clergy and learned societies and members of royalty even. And then you had the British Israel Association of Ireland was set up in Dublin in 1897, just two years before they went to see could they recover the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, But the Tara Exploration Fund had already been set up in 1877 um, 1877? It, yeah, even yes. before the main organisation. And the, they were advertising in the Banner of Israel, which is one of the journals of the main organisation for donations to mm. dig at Tara. I'm, I'm going to go with cult on, on this one, definitely. So uh, how did they become obsessed with Tara? Well, they, they first of all, they believed that Tara was the resuscitated Jerusalem in a new Israel which was synonymous with the British Empire. So they then carried out studies on the Bible, on early Irish history, on antiquarianism and on linguistics. And if you think of it, Ireland in 1899 was basically a royal site in the British Empire. So they traced the genealogy of the kings and queens of England through the kings and queens of Tara, 
back to the biblical King David. And the main source for this was that there's uh, an 11th century poem which was translated from the Irish language and it was written by Cúan O'Lochan and it describes Tia Teffy as a princess of the line of David and that she was the daughter of a pharaoh and she brought the Ark of the Covenant with her and she's buried on the hill of Tara. Right, okay. Is she, I mean, did this person actually exist? <laughs> Do we know or is this totally made up? Well, it's... She's in the tradition, right. you know, so she's written about in, in the same a way poem. as Finn McCool or Cucullin are in she, the tradition. Yeah, yeah. And you see, with the, I suppose, the kings and queens of Tara, you have historical kings and queens, You've, you have legendary kings, you, you have mythological kings. So they would have drawn on mythology and history. And all of that. And in composing this elaborate template, shall we say, were there gaps that they needed to fill and perhaps did so with a certain amount of imagination? Well, you see, they were uh, quite diligent in drawing a whole diverse group of subjects together to get the narrative. For example, they studied the work of Charles Valancy, and he was an 18th century antiquarian. Now, while he was a good cartographer and he was a surveyor, he also studied linguistics, but he wasn't really good at that. And he wrote an essay on the antiquity of the Irish language in 1772. But his work on linguistics was actually discredited in his own lifetime. So the 19th century British Israelites were drawing from the work of an 18th century scholar that was already in his own lifetime discredited. Mm. So, they, you see, they had this, one of their core things was that English was predestined to become the language of the universe and that that would be achieved by expansion of empire because if it was the Hebrew language... Well, that's a self-fulfilling <laughs> prophecy for a start, so, isn't it? Yeah. So so they compared words like they said Tara was really the Torah and the Leofal was really half Celtic and half Hebrew and really was Jacob's pillow or the symbol of empire. Where, whereas in an Irish tradition... You had the idea of the God Lou's uh, voice could be heard through the Leofal when you had the correct king in place. So, I mean, are they essentially suggesting that Ireland was the holy land? In a way, maybe, yes, it was the promised land because their theory was that Tara was the transplanted Jerusalem. Right. And as the transplanted Jerusalem, where would you find the Ark of the Covenant? Well, exactly. Only where else? In the transplanted yeah. uh, Jerusalem, but we shouldn't go around looking for Nazareth and Bethlehem in Ireland anywhere. No, no, this was ver- this, this is, is the a very, promised land. This is yeah, this is As very opposed to the actual holy land. Yeah, this is very specific to do with their theories. It's, it's th- theories about identity and theories about empire. And at the time, like Tara is a royal site in that empire as far as they're concerned. And this is a hundred odd years before the internet even. Um, and in 1899, they arrive at Tara and yeah. you would have, I mean, nowadays, I think you probably can't even cut the grass at Tara without getting planning permission. But back then, it was completely different. Tara was privately owned. Yeah, it was. Um, and the owner, Gustavius Villiers Briscoe, he gave permission to the British Israelites to dig. 
And um, just to tell you the two people that came, one, his name was Charles Groom and he was credited in the Banner of Israel with the honour of putting the first spade into Tara and he claimed that he worked out the fine spot using Masonic methods because he was a Freemason and he he had very unusual things in the Covenant people about measurements of Tara the pyramids of Egypt and the Ark of the Covenant <laughs> and, and Briscoe was a Freemason as well so he had a bit yeah, of skin in the game yeah he, he did and, and like there is a little medallion in, in the Freemasons Hall's museum which says Knights of Tara on it and they were a select circle of British Israelites who believed the Ark was a Tara and they practised a particular Masonic ceremony in memory of the Ark and there was it was mentioned in the Covenant people that they could discontinue that once they recovered the Ark. Now, Walton Adams was the other man. He was a prominent British Israelite. And as I, as I was saying, because they believed that Tara was the transplant of Jerusalem, they expected the Ark to find the Ark uh, there. And they wanted to present it to Queen Victoria and then later her son, Edward VII. And they concentrated their attention on uh, on the wrath of the synods. That's not W R A T H. That comes later. But the R A T H, the wrath, mm-hmm. the wrath of the synods. And they didn't, even though um, Adams, Walton Adams, was an archaeologist. I don't think they went at it with, uh, you know, with with spoons and toothbrushes and that kind No, of they thing. were accused of going at it with picks uh, and shovels. If they'd had JCBs they, in those days, <laughs> yeah. they might have used one of those um, as well. But you, but see, the the interesting thing about this sort of dig is that you had some people like for example Robert Cochran from the Office of Public Works he came up and put a stop to their activities initially but because what he did was actually illegal he had to pay compensation the OPW paid compensation to Briscoe but Robert Cochran is interesting because he kind of he, he was the superintendent of the ancient and national monuments at the OPW. He was a vice president of the Royal Society of Antiquaries and a member of the Royal Irish Academy. But he was also a Freemason and he also subscribed to the Covenant people. And he was also getting business cards inviting him to British Israelite meetings. So, but he put, I suppose, his antiquarianism or his archaeology first at the time because archaeology at the time was getting much more scientific. So he was very concerned about this kind of attack on the site. Did they do much damage? They actually did a, a lot of damage. And is that still apparent to it this is, day? It is, yeah. You, yeah, it's, you, you can still see the damage on the wrath of the synods. Yeah, you definitely can. Now, today, obviously, we recognise Tara as a site of, of national importance. And, I mean, back in the 1820s, it was the site of one of the biggest monster meetings during the Catholic Emancipation yeah. Campaign. So mm-hmm. there must have been some sense of yeah. the importance of Tara. How would it have been regarded by the Irish people in the in the 1890s? Oh, well, I mean, first of all, ordinary people, if you like, would have been sort of revered national monuments or ancient monuments or they had a lot of superstitions about them and in general they didn't interfere with them. But Tara itself would have always been regarded traditionally as the capital of ancient Ireland. So in in terms of nationalism and that uh, it was very important. And kind of a a spiritual site as well really. 
even though the, the British Israelites said it was the spiritual birthplace of the Anglo-Saxon nation. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, I'm sure there would have been quite a few Irish around who would have disputed that. Well, like Yeats One, and all. Well, <laughs> precisely, because this is where this is where not so much Yeats gets involved. Well, he does get involved. I mean, he he was he was critical, described it as the most consecrated place in Ireland. And he, yeah. he objected, didn't yeah. he? Or he oh, certainly didn't like what was going on. Yeah, he said what they did was monstrous in its lunacy and it was being carried out by English fanatics. But, I mean, he went up to Tara to protest with Arthur Griffith and George Moore and Douglas Hyde. And Arthur Griffith writes about that particular incident later in The United Irishman. And he said that Briscoe was standing there drinking whiskey and directing operations and uh, that he wouldn't give them permission to walk across the site. But uh, Griffin stated that, uh, you know, it was the site of the city of our kings. So they insisted on walking across it. But Briscoe was accompanied by a man with a rifle. So obviously they needed protection at that Mm. stage. And a little bit later, uh, Charles Groom ha- had to be protected by the local police as well. Uh, obviously, Griffith, this was 19 or 1899, 1900. So Griffith wasn't in a position to say, do you not know who I am? Uh, nobody would have had a clue who he was <laughs> in, in those days. But yeah. he, he comes back at some point and he brings somebody very interesting with him because Maud Gone paid a visit. Oh, yeah. Arthur Griffith and Maud Gone went up to the Hill of Tara on Christmas Day, 1900, to see what kind of damage was being um, done. And later on, um, Maud Gan writes the first letter in the media campaign, uh, or the first article rather, in January 1901. And she describes a visionary experience she had up there. She said she s- saw shuddery misting forms and she heard the harp on the wind and all of that. But Arthur Griffith didn't see anything. Mm. And well, Maud couldn't step out the door without <laughs> no, having a vision of visions. some kind. So, yeah. And W.B. Yeats said about her that if the true nature of her visions were known, she'd be locked up as mad. <laughs> and the, the, I mean, to what extent did the, the, the British Israelites come back? And to what extent was this a kind of a recurring phenomenon and might you know required a, a campaign on the part of people like Yeats and Hyde and George Moore and people like that? Yeah, like they, they came um, for a number of seasons between 1899 and 1902. And there was like, obviously the major campaign was going on and Arthur Griffith was sort of spearheading it, even though he he <laughs> was passing scurrilous remarks about all of them in that he was referring to the British Israelites as barbarians and Huns and the Anglo-Israel destroyers of Tara. But he didn't like the Royal Irish Academy or the Society of Antiquaries either because he called the Royal Irish Academy people old daughters who were whose veins are full of dirty water. Well, he didn't think they were doing, or the antiquary, the Royal Society <laughs> you see, were we, doing very much about it. No, he, he thought they were selling Tara for dinner and champagne. But, um, and the reason he, 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 he thought that was because, you see, legally they weren't entitled to stop it. So the next best thing they could uh, do was to meet the people that were involved and see could they persuade them to stop. So, they were apparently meeting them in gentlemen's clubs around Dublin. So he he was very suspicious of them all. Um, Okay, spoiler alert. Um, You may wish to turn down your radio at this stage because I'm going to ask a key question. Did they find the Ark of the Covenant? No, they didn't. (laughs) No, they didn't. 
So they did find something. They found, they found some Roman coins. Yeah, they didn't found they? Roman coins. Or did they find them, or did they plant them? Well, at the time, they, they it was disputed in, say, the United Irishmen whether they found the Roman coins or not, because Arthur Griffith wouldn't like the idea of them finding Roman coins on the hill of Tara. But, you know, much later on in the 50s, they had an excavation of the Wrath of the Synods and there was plenty of Roman material uh, Ah, but they could have been planted by the British Israelites (laughs) back in 1899. (laughs) Um, It seems, finally, that some people still maintain that there is a link between Tara and the Ark of the Covenant. Tell us about that. Well, even very recently in 2018, somebody left um, a replica of the Ark of the Covenant on the Wrath of the Synods. And there was a sign beside it with Jerusalem written in English and in Hebrew and also the words Torah and Tara. So obviously people still believe in that idea. Okay, it's, yeah, cult definitely is the word. Um, Mairead Carew, thank you very much indeed for joining us on the History Show this evening to talk about the story of Tara and the Ark of the the Covenant, which is also the title of your book on the same subject. Fascinating. Okay, thanks very much, Miles.